welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast. Today we welcome our 13th guest to the podcast. Her name is Marilyn Okoro. Marilyn is a former British track and field athlete who has represented Great Britain at the Beijing Olympics in 2008, finishing six at the semifinals. She also was part of the 4x400m relay team, winning bronze in those same Olympics. Some of Marilyn's major achievements include finishing third in the 800 meters at both the 2007 and 2008 IAAF World Athletics Finals, winning silver at the four times 400 meter relay in the 2009 and 2011 Indoor European Championships, as well as in the 2010 Outdoor European Championships. Outside of sport, Marilyn has managed to achieve a bachelor's degree in politics and French. Marilyn is currently an athlete entrepreneur and does various public speaking, sharing a message regarding overcoming adversity, breaking stereotypes, detaching the mental health stigma, developing perseverance and a champion mindset. So let's welcome Marilyn to the podcast. There we go. <laughs> Hi. Hey. I'm trying not to melt here. Oh, I've, got a fa- I've got a fan on me right now. Oh, <laughs> you're good. I was like, because it's so cold in Wigan normally. I'm like, I'm not getting a fan. Yeah. Oh, you've always got you've always got to have one because we get that one week in summer where no one can survive. I've got a fan heater. Will that turn into a fan, do you think? Maybe. <laughs> Just put it on the coldest setting. I know. How are you guys? How are you both? Yeah, doing good. Doing apart, good. From melt, apart from melting at work today. I'm not yeah. complaining because I do prefer the heat to the cold. Yeah. I just prefer a bit more milder to this, just a slightly, slightly less hot. Because I swear, the weather in the UK to to weather in Spain, even if it's the same temperature, it just feels like 100 times hotter. Yeah. And we're not prepared for it either. No. Don't know why. (laughs) I've acclimatised, so I feel like I'm I'm okay. But there's some wind here, which is the big difference, I think, to you guys. You guys are just sitting in like an oven right now. (laughs) You just go from 0 to 100, literally. (laughs) <laughs> hey Myron, I saw that you speak French. Tu parles français? Okay, <laughs> let's go. Perfect. So, the, so we're going to do the whole podcast in French now. So, yeah, I don't speak French. So. <laughs> <laughs> um so what we do when, when we get a guest done is um where we like to start is to sort of start from from the beginning so the start of your career like growing up what may, motivated you to engage in track and field do you have any inspirations to get you into it how was it growing up uh it's a good place to start in the beginning isn't it uh, that's a long way away from me <laughs> but it is quite a good idea seeing as i've come to the end and i feel like a lot of things have gone full circle um, I do a lot of speaking now and I literally my last t- visit was to my old boarding school where everything began so yeah. I grew up in northwest London and it's called Stowbridge Park but everyone knows Wembley um, and it's the sort of council estate tucked behind Wembley Stadium literally so I could hear everything going on free concerts it was great um, <laughs> but it's also an area of like extreme disadvantage um high poverty, crime rates, gang culture. So, you know, that reflected life growing up. Um, I'm the eldest of three siblings. Um, my mum and dad are both Nigerian. So sort of first generation over here. Um, but yeah, I just grew up with a lot of adversity. And I think that's, you know, something I, I definitely don't shy away from talking about because that gave me the emotional resilience that definitely prepared me for the elite world of sport. But just to keep on keeping on. Um, 
and sport was definitely not a factor. Uh, in fact, you'll probably hear a lot about my mum coming in shortly, but, you know, running was not a career. Um, mm. It was all about education. Nigerian parents are very proud. So even before, you know, a child is born, when a, a mum is pregnant, they're like, what are you having? And they say, well, this one's going to be a doctor or this one's going to be a lawyer. So coming from a, a family of medics, uh, I always heard I was going to be a doctor and, you know, or a lawyer or a pharmacist. Uh, but at 10 years old, uh, a defining moment in my life, by most definitely, was I got sent to boarding school, which sounds like a punishment, right? No. <laughs> it was literally the making of me, you know, it, nothing short of a miracle. You know, I speak all the time and you'll get like your parent asking how I ended up there. Literally was through my dad, who I'm not in touch with. He's, we've not really had a relationship, but he sent me to this school you know, and um, whatever you want to call it for me, I just believe that is what was supposed to happen because that's where I found running. And for me, that was, you know, that was the opportunity that I literally took and ran with. Um, yeah. But it was a small, really small boarding school at the time, um, 180 in the entire school, 21 in my year. So you can imagine the any sort of neglect or, you know, lack of opportunity. I just had it all there, plus all the pastoral care. Um, and I literally, I call it the playground of opportunities. It was this little boarding school in Hertfordshire called Abbots okay. Hill. And that's where I could try everything, things I'd never tried before, languages. I learned to speak French there, Spanish. Um, I loved all, I loved school. I was very academic, apart from maths. Yeah, <laughs> maths and it. physics wasn't for me. Yeah. Uh, it's a different language that I didn't understand. Um, but I still did well because you had that one-to-one support. You had that environment where everyone wanted to do well and excel. And they really, you know, the values there are inclusivity um, and collaboration and really championing each individual girl. And that's what I found. Um, yeah, I felt right at home there, even though loads of the, you know, no one was from where I was from. I was often, I think, well, when I first arrived, there were some black girls in the uh, year 11, but obviously they soon left. But I didn't really notice any kind of, there was no bullying, anything like that. If you fell out with someone, you had no friends. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just the perfect environment. But that's where I met George, my first coach, who introduced okay. me to running my my athletics club, Shafty Barnet Harriers, up the stripes. Um, but he also saw that, you know, obviously when I went home in the holidays, I would lack that support, lack that opportunity. Because my mum really did not appreciate it. She was like... <laughs> I didn't send you to school to run, you know. <laughs> she was not <laughs> impressed. Uh, and for her, she, you know, my my dad's spending all this money on my education, not for me to go and waste it running around a track. It made no sense. And it's the lack yeah. of security and also the stuff she was facing in the UK at the time. So I understand why she was like that. But I also try and educate, you know, kids from Black and Asian communities that you can do well. This can be, in, you know, go hand in hand with education, which it did for me. I went on to another great school, Stowe, where I did my A-levels. I went on to University of Bath, which was amazing, you know, center of excellence. And they really nurtured developed me the whole time maintaining my relationship with George at the time as my, my coach. And he would send me my program in the post. It was before <laughs> email and WhatsApp, it, you know, I just would receive yeah. it and, you know, grab a couple of lads. We'd run around. They couldn't keep up. It was great. Um, but Team Bath was an amazing environment. And that's where the sort of professional side started to creep in. Course, I was still doing my degree in French and politics, working a couple, a couple, couple full time jobs. I don't know how we do it all when we're young. Um, but I was just determined to see if I could, you know, make it. George had said, 
you know, you've got the talent, like, let's see how far we can take this. So the Olympics was a distant dream, but the fact that he'd seen that in me and believed in me and nurtured me and was doing 150% to get me there, kept me going. Um, and there is always that one person that just sows that seed. And that was George for me, okay. uh, coupled with the environments that I then went into. And I led with my running because that's what was my ticket out of where I'd come from. Um, and so my final year at uni, so this is 2006, um, I got selected for the Commonwealth Games, which wow. was off the back of going to the World Students and, you know, randomly coming third and randomly running like a two second PR. So, and then Kelly Holmes had retired and it was like that perfect kind of storm. And I went to the Commonwealth Games, ran two minutes, made the final. And that was kind of me coming into the world of 800 meter elite running. Um, so it sounds very whirlwindy because it was. And then, you know, the subsequent couple of years was also because two years later I was at the Olympic Games, um, you know, running down Maria Matola and running 158. So it just shows what that chance and opportunity um, can do and being in the right environment. Yeah, I think it's so good like, uh, throughout that that you was promoting being able to do education alongside um, mm. pursuing your, your career in athletics because it's such a good transition factor, which we'll obviously come on to um, later on in the podcast. But obviously touching on the Olympics, what was it like knowing that you were going to compete in your first Olympics? What, what was that feeling like? mean amazing yeah <laughs> i can imagine it's like i think for me it i was automatically in that zone where if i'm going to do this i need to get to the top whatever the highest thing is yeah. so it was confirmation that all my hard work paid off it is relief because getting it right at the championship trials beforehand is very very tricky um you know it's different to every other year every other year it's just nationals but olympic year it's olympic trials so I always felt the pressure, um, but I was running, I was in the shape of my life. Um, it was almost like I was just in that mindset where, well, that's what it is. That's what I've worked for. So, um, but what, obviously when you get out there, it really hits you. And this is what the athletes at Tokyo now are feeling, irrespective yeah. of what year it is, COVID or not. They've got that Olympic village. You know, you can see the beds are all made, the cardboard beds are all made up. They've got the gift. You've got the other athletes arriving. There's nothing like it. You know, that is what everyone talks about. It's the pinnacle, especially of our sport. Um, and all eyes are on athletics for, <laughs> the, that's the main championship all eyes are on athletics for. So um, on that grand stage, as it were. So it is, it's amazing. And Beijing will always be my favourite games. Yeah. You never forget your first. <laughs> Without a doubt. Um, I had a question for you. So, you competed in two events at the Olympics. You did the 800 mm -hmm. and the 4 by uh, 400 meters. Yes. I, I've always wondered for athletes, is that difficult to kind of, because they're quite different in a way, is it difficult to kind of focus on both of them at the same time? I've always seen yeah. athletes competing in different events. For you, was it challenging or was it like, okay, that's great. I'm going to be competing in two events. Let's, let's go for it. It was great. Um, I think I naturally, because at school, I played a lot of sports. I got to say I did tennis, I did lacrosse, I did netball. So I naturally learnt, lent to that, you know, speed endurance, um, start stop kind of element of middle distance running, especially the 400 and 800. And we don't have many combination athletes, what I call them. Um, so, you know, when you think about heptathlon, they're doing loads of events in one day. When you are at school and running for your club, you're doing loads of events in one day. 
So at elite level, you should be able to train for it. You should be able to do that. And that's the mentality me and my coach had. I've also spent five years, you know, over in the collegiate system in the States, working at the University of Central Florida. And those kids are expected to perform at high level and, you know, double, triple up sometimes. Um, so as long as I was prepared um, for that, uh, it was, you know, it was a no brainer. I think I naturally had quite a lot of stamina and also it's about shifting your mind and being able to say, okay, I'm doing a speed event now. This is what I need to change at the start. So I, that naturally came to me. I'm quite um, a multitasker anyway. And also it's nice to have something after your event, <laughs> irrespective yeah. of how it's gone. If it's gone bad, you want redemption. If it's gone well, you still just want to go and celebrate. So yeah, it always worked really well for me. I used to get upset when the 1500 and the 800 were switched around. So normally at the beginning of the week of the 800 than the 15s, when they switch it around, it meant I was closer to the four by four, but I was still adamant I'd do it. <laughs> I mean, those are two like extremely difficult events that you've chose there, 800 and 400. Like the 400 yeah. is especially the most difficult, difficult one of, of the lot. So I usually ask this later on in the podcast, but I, want, I feel like it's a perfect time to ask it now. What do you think is the most important psychological attribute or quality you feel make a successful 800 meter runner, but also a 400 meter runner, like in, in general, and a track and field athlete? What do you think helps you make it? Because it requires a lot, I'm, I'm sure, a lot of like perseverance and mental toughness to be able to break through that lactate threshold. You cannot fear pain. Yeah. I, <laughs> That's uh, the bottom line. Yeah. You've got to run into that belly of the beast yeah. and know it's coming and be prepared um, and that's something I was never afraid of the sessions are much worse than the race the thing that hurts in the race is the fact that you probably get beat for all that lactic but if yeah. you are not afraid to take yourself there hold it together you know it's 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 a fantastic race the 400 I wish I ran it more would probably be one of the only regrets I have about my career I should have run the 400 more but then running the 800 again I I have that mentality of getting out hard and running a fast, honest race. So, you know, they both hurt. <laughs> I'd probably <laughs> say the 800 definitely chose me. I would have been very happy to stick to the four. But, yeah, they're great races to watch. Um, obviously, with the 400, you stay in your lane. Um, and then you get a bit of the luck of the draw. But I was someone like, if I was in lane one, lane eight, I still need to run oh, fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So with the 800... You have a little bit more anxiety because typically over here, a lot of the girls are distance runners. And so if you, well, it goes wrong sometimes, you know, when you go up too hard. <laughs> yeah. And so you're always thinking they're coming to get me. But that's where you, that's, that was the mental battle for me. The days where I didn't care who was coming, I ran, you know, astonishingly well. There's lots of my races. They were like, this looks like a cross country race. And they used to hate it. Okay. Yeah. But that's how I knew to run. So I wished I was supported more with that because when I went over to the States, loads more people would be like, let's run hard today, girls. <laughs> but over here, it was like, let's take the pacemaker out. We need to make this a jog, yeah. uh, which I didn't like. I didn't like running slowly because either way, it's going to hurt. So why not just get out there and get it over quicker? <laughs> yeah. Do you know, like the adrenaline of these events, so the Commonwealth Games, the Olympics, do you find that that can either hinder your um, race because you can might go out of the blocks too quick or do you feel like it can support you, especially in those last 100 metres where, I mean, your legs turn to jelly, I imagine? <laughs> Fuel. Um, no, absolutely. That's, that's the whole thing, mastering one's mind and oneself to perform in that kind of environment. 
Um, and, you know, some days I got it spectacularly, spectacularly did it well, and some days disastrously wrong. But um, I would not change how I ran. All I would change is that we we trained for it and embraced it more because I felt like towards the end of my, or whenever it went wrong. So if you listen to any of my races, listen carefully to the commentary. And, you know, I just loved shocking them and they'd have to eat their words at the end. But, you know, if you nurture and develop your talent, your style, look at Michael Johnson, no one changed his style. Look at Paula Radcliffe, no one changed her style. It's almost like stop trying to fix something that's not broken, but you still have to develop the the strengths. I think we work a lot and we're not good at this, so let's, let's smash that. But my attributes are looking at the kind of individual I am, my genetics, my body type, how I ran. You know, it was all tailored to that power, speed-based 800-meter runner. Now, 800 meters is half a mile, so it's still a bit of distance. You still need a certain level of endurance in the tank, which I had. I had a strong 1500. I had a strong mile. Um, so, yeah, I just, I relished that. I relished, I always used to put on my socks, catch me if you can, because I was going to okay. go out hard. And, you know, mo most often than not, everyone was like, oh, at least we run a PB. So... Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that element. And also it didn't give me time to, to think too much. That was, I just, just go into autopilot because that's how I trained. It's really frustrating when you train a certain way and you get used to a certain cadence and then in the race that's messed up. And we see how that can be detrimental in sort of more technical events when you don't get your rhythm right. And that's exactly how it was for me. I relied on my rhythm as opposed to um, that kind of slow then kick. At those same Olympics, so you ended up uh, winning silverware, didn't you? Uh, at, at the end, you won bronze. But it was kind of not maybe the way you guys expected. Um, I was going to say, in the end, when was the end? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So oh, yeah. how was that, like knowing that you guys actually managed to get uh, a medal, but, you know, not right. maybe so, the, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's, um, that's quite a huge part of my story, actually, because... There's actually a 10-year wait in between. So the end was like 2018. Wow. <laughs> um, so we were very disappointed. We go back to 2007. We were bronze medalists at the World Championships, national record. So you kind of know which, especially the relays, you don't run them often. You know, based off of the 400s, how the team should look and shape up. And we had the Olympic champion. We had, you know, the world gold and silver medalist the other girls were really strong and I was running strong that year so we were quite shocked when we crossed the line in fifth to be honest our splits were good um and yeah what could you do you just deflated you know I hadn't made the final so it was it was still my first Olympics so I was happy in that respect but you just knew what shape you're in and when you know what shape you're in and you don't come away with the performance you're like okay what am I going to do to get better Honestly, with the times the girls are running, I was just like, I'll just have to just keep going because those were, you know, drugs times. Yeah. Um, and so I was in America in 2016 and a friend sent me a voice note saying, hello, bronze medalist. And I was like, I was injured. I hadn't run for ages. I was like, why are you being so cruel? Like, <laughs> I haven't even to touch the track. And I thought she was being um, like putting it out there because I was trying to get back for Rio and things like that. I was like, I'm not in the mood for this positive chat. Positively <laughs> 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 elsewhere. Um, yeah. No, they've just said on the radio that um, you guys are going to get upgraded. And I was like, oh. But there had been a string of um, busts. Before someone's been busted. Um, and so I quickly went on Google and I saw it there. I saw my face holding the button and then all the other girls. 
So then I contacted um, our performance director at the time. And he's like, he's just waiting for, because once what happens is when someone's been caught or their samples positive, they have to test everyone's, then they have to do the Bs, uh, then they have to get it ratified. So there's a bit of a process before they can confirm it with us. Um, I was like, with the radio now. Um, and then he was, yeah, I got the message that it was an upgrade and it's been confirmed that two teams had been busted. And that's why it took a little bit longer. And I was like, wow. But then I didn't hear anything. That was 2016. I didn't hear anything. I was like, oh, maybe, maybe they contested it, appealed it. Um, and then I came home in 2017 and 2018 during the Diamond League in London. They did a ceremony for us because it was it all gone through. It was all confirmed. Uh, so that was a really nice plan B because we got to stand on the podium by ourselves. We got the national anthem and we were in the London Olympic Stadium. My mum was there waving her Nigerian and British flag. <laughs> um, you know, people that wouldn't have been in Beijing were there. Yeah. But it was very emotional for me because I remember standing in that stadium, standing on that podium and looking at the girls. They'd all retired. I hadn't quite retired. I didn't actually know what I was going to do in my life at that point is very frustrating because as happy as it is you've got you know your medal your silverware all those stolen moments suddenly go through your head yeah, <laughs> you know when i got kicked off funding you're not a medal contender well bam, here's a medal um yeah. yeah just loads of sponsorship loss lots of confidence lost really stolen moments but ultimately it's what happens to you on the inside that could have been the difference me keeping going getting that motivation um, but that wasn't like the at 2008, I was still just beginning. So it's just, you think, what could have been the trajectory of my career? Um, and especially when our model of performance is so hindered on funding and medals, it was yeah. very detrimental um, to not be an Olympic medalist in those years. But yeah. I did feel, so the way I am, I turned it into something that will benefit me. And for me, that was understanding that I was always enough. I was always the athlete I knew I was um and the opinion of the governing body or any you know anyone didn't really matter unless I knew you know I'd given it my all I was a clean athlete I'm an ambassador for clean sport and I was an Olympic medalist so what could I do with this platform now what could I do what could this medal still do for me and that's what I'm still figuring out but it definitely has opened lots of doors especially in, in terms of getting out there sharing my story speaking um it definitely does it did show me the fickle side of sport though (laughs) because suddenly a lot of those people that were saying no suddenly remember you again and that's what's sad for me like athlete welfare is what I'm always screaming about and I won't you know shut up about it until there's change um because we're not just commodities we're not just about what our bodies can do for the sport and then discard shouldn't be discarded because that's how I felt so yeah, my bronze medal, I take her everywhere. I need to name her actually. <laughs> Prize for anyone who come up with a good name. Um, <laughs> um, quarantina maybe. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, it's, it was a very, another defining moment in my life. Uh, definitely steered me towards, you know, I thought it was towards Tokyo, but actually what I've come to find was actually the latter stages of my career, but better late than never. Yeah. It's, it's nice that they could give you that sort of ceremony because like an experience of that um that i sort of know of was um the crossfit games and I, th- I think it was 2018 where um this french guy he'd, he'd been lot on drugs and he come third and he got that podium experience of, of being up there celebrating 
and they got found out that he'd, he'd taken drugs and he took that feeling away from someone else who come forth really? and that was really really frustrating so how frustrating is that for you and what do you think to the current initiatives in doping uh, do you think they're like becoming more effective and it's helping out track and field athletes or or do you still think it's quite a big problem I'm not sure what I should say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is a huge problem still. You is know, it? I take my hand, my hat off to UK anti-doping, the WADA, you know, all the other countries that are trying really hard, but there's still people not pulling their weight. And for some reason, these athletes and these dopers, whether it's systemic and institutional or on an individual level, they're still ahead of the game. So in that respect, there's still work to do. That was 2008 that happened and we were getting our medal in 2018. So there's still a lot, you know, catch up. But I do feel like there is change. They are getting stricter. Um, there's a couple of situations that happened this year with US athletes, which are a little, you know, tricky. Um, yeah, but yeah. they're showing that they're not taking any prisoners. They're clamping down. Um, our case was very, you know, black and white. The cases this year, not so much. So, um, you know, again, you've got the issue of missing tests versus actually people doping. Um, and sometimes I feel like when it's a missed test and the evidence comes out, I think they clamp down a lot heavier than they should be compared to dopers because they then get tarnished with the same brush. But um, ultimately, when it's so rife, you've just got to just stick to the jurisdiction and everybody knows the rules you know so I made an effort to go I had no one to advocate for me so I had to make sure that I took it seriously and went through hell and high water to make sure I never missed a test and never had anything that could contaminate might be contaminated obviously those are there is those you know those cases but some of them are just a bit really come on um yeah, yeah. really <laughs> yeah yeah so, yeah it is it's tough there's still work to be done but there are a lot of athletes that you know they are clean ambassadors and i just think it's so sad for a sport like athletics because we don't have a lot of visibility we don't have a lot of sponsorship and we hear the biggest names coming out of or the, the biggest number of names being testing positive coming out of athletics so it's it's not in a great space at the minute but what can we do change changes coming and and we just have to try and get ahead of, of the dopers i think i think it's great that you're sort of shedding light on the like adverse effects it can have apart from just the podium experience like the fact that it got your funding and other sponsors and things like that like i i, I hadn't even realized that because yeah. you was you wasn't a medalist, so it's great that you sort of spreading that message. Because I mean, hey. these, these dopers, man, that's just <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I think they should let the athletes deal with them. Just kidding. Buzz all in room. I'd love to see that. I'll change sports. <laughs> UFC. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get it set up. It's yeah. like that YouTube boxing. We'll just do. Uh, we'll set our own up. Yeah. No, I know Tasha Jonas very well. I'm not boxing. I'm no good. <laughs> um, you you mentioned some American athletes. So, what do you what are your thoughts on the Shikari Richardson like situation? Because I was really excited to see her compete, and it sucks. It really does. It sucks because I was so excited by her. She's just such. She's 
she's what the sport needs. She's a yep. fantastic little personality. Literally. From her wigs to her nails. She was she was so real. And that's yep. what you've yep. seen in this situation. She's just been like, it is what it is. I am who I am. I'm human. I made a mistake. She was going through a very human issue and problem. Like it's like, where is the humanity in, in everything? So, you know, we don't get given the complete story, unfortunately. Um, I think she could have done with a bit more sort of media training and support um, as far as what she's been, you know, putting out in the press. And yeah, I always say this when athletes are caught, where is their team? Because it's always just the athlete face. They have to deal with it all versus <laughs> this big institution. Um, I think it's harsh, to be honest. Um, and I normally, I come down very heavily when anyone says, what? Put them away, man for life. But you've got to look at every case individually. Um, and that's kind of all we really ask to be asset-based and person-centered in every aspect. You know, there was another situation, um, Brianna Rollins as well. She's on a five-year ban for missing her test, but she had an abortion and was going through, you know, a really dark time. She didn't want to open her door. And I know what it's like to be depressed. You don't want to open your door to anyone, what, doping or not. You're not in that space. Plus, she's going through that trauma. So, you know, five years, really, for that. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 I, I'm gutted. I'm gutted not to see Shakari. I'm gutted that Brianna can't defend her Olympic title. Um, but this is where sport needs to still figure it out <laughs> and, yeah. you know, get get the ruling right when. Because it's like, yeah, we're clamping down, but is that the right, is that really justice? Or is it just a token, you know, just to say that you're, you're doing something? So, yeah. yeah, it's a shame. Some of these rule makers, I mean, especially in sport, my sport, football, uh, it's just infuriating to watch. <laughs> no, but, but you guys, you guys set the precedent and you guys lead the way, so... Whenever there's a huge change, it's going to be in football first and then it will yeah. trickle down. So come on then, guys, what are we going to do? Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's try and get it right then. Yeah. Um, but something we love to touch on uh, in our podcast, because me and John have both gone through it, is our experiences with injury. And we saw that in 2009, you were competing and carrying an injury uh, pretty much during the 2009 outdoor season and achieved eighth in the World Championships in the AMG Meter Finals. So... How did you manage to sort of push through that that period um, of the outdoor season? This is the dangerous side of sport, especially a sport like athletics, especially elite sport period. You are pushing through your pain threshold is ridiculous. It's not it's yeah. not like anyone can comprehend. I've been to copious amounts of physios or massage therapists and they're just like, I'm tired, I can't massage anymore. But almost <laughs> it's understanding what pain is where, because actually sometimes when I felt that something different was going on, it was more of a nervous system. And um, But in terms of 2009, um, it was a really weird injury. So if we you know, go back to the indoor season, um, I had, um, I'd hurt my knees, I fell. <laughs> Don't Google this race, but I fell <laughs> flat on my face. Insert, insert clip now. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you find it, it's quite funny. I was on world record pace. Yeah, this is Turin, 2009 okay. Europeans. I, honestly, I only watched this race about three years ago because I was so embarrassed. But <laughs> I went off really fast. And it wasn't my fault. The Ukrainian girl set me off. And then I responded. Okay. And I was literally <laughs> world record pace, 56-1. I've never gone out, done that fast outdoors. And it was going beautifully until 700 metres. But that's 700 metres indoors. So you've still got to come out and turn. 
and about 20 meters. So the gold medal gone, the silver gone, clinging on, clinging on for third. And then this girl put me in Italian. And then I just fell, you know, over rotation. And I just hit the deck. And I think how I landed must have done something. I know I definitely did something to my rib cage and I did something to my knees. However, I had the four by four. So I don't really think about it then. 40 minutes later, back out. Apparently the commentator was like, we probably won't see Marilyn again after that. I don't know what they said. Probably having a baller laughing at me. And then I did a stride across the screen. My friends are like, oh, there she is. So yeah. And how did I respond? I ran the quickest four by four leg. That is how oh, wow. Um, but yeah, but then March came around. So that was end of March. Went to America, beginning of April. We're just doing our warm weather training and my knees were just killing me. Every morning I'd literally just, I could only walk. I had to walk for about 20 minutes. Then I could jog and I could run. So I developed like patella tendinopathy, one of the ones. Um, so I could train, but I needed to get really intensive work through it. Um, and they said at the end of the season, I could have like a full on scan. I was like, okay, great. <laughs> World Championship, I'm going to wait till the end of the season. Um, and then we'd sort it out with PRP and things like that. But I couldn't do it in the middle of the season. So I just had to forget about not running and just do what I could. I could bike. Um, I could run when I could. I could do specific sessions. And that's how I prepared just to be adaptable um, and took that challenge because I didn't want to have surgery. So it was like run through it, see if we could improve it with rehab and things like that. When I got to the World Championships, um, I was fine. It was just the rounds. So it was built up. So I just had to be really good with my recovery strategies. Ice, 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 needling, needling. And then when you're in the final, you don't really think about your niggles or anything. You just, well, I was thinking about, oh my God, Castor Semenya's in this race. This person's in this race. Yeah. But I'd also just made my first World Championship final. So I had to be proud of myself. You know, that's the bit that everyone doesn't see what's going on behind closed doors, inside the athlete's head, mind and body. Um, and I watched the race and it's so like knowing if I was 100% healthy, I could have responded more in the last 100. I was there, my body knew what to do. I put myself in all the right places. I just faded, you know, when you need that extra gear, I didn't have it. So it's gutting, but I'm still a world champion finalist. <laughs> How was it mentally though? Like, um, like going through that period like it must have been so like emotionally like mentally draining you know um yeah I don't know absolutely I think the last few years for me have been I don't I think I've just been in recovery mode and not really realized it because my body has just been so programmed to perform and I didn't really um take on a lot of things like anything that might have been a hindrance I was so laser focused on running and performance I didn't really leave any room for any of that stuff to stop me I'm like I was just this crazy bulldozer so any problems that came I just needed to problem solve up over it under it round side however but you know there were times where I was frustrated because I felt like people weren't listening to me I was really struggling with sort of my team and you know, recognizing who actually cared about Marilyn the human and Marilyn the runner. Um, and ultimately I felt like I was in a system where you just had to just put up and shut up. Um, and if you performed, you performed. And if you didn't then get out of the way because someone else is going to perform. So because of that, often you're, you're scared to speak up about how bad things are, which obviously is not a healthy environment to be in. You know, unfortunately this is elite sport, but the culture is what I'm trying to expose and revolutionize and you know i'm not alone in that thinking 
I think when you are in it, you feel like you're the only person going through that. You're the only person that's experiencing this. But what I've realized by stepping away and definitely in my retirement that there's a lot of cracks in the system and there's a lot of welfare and safeguarding issues which are just not acceptable. Um, and you are allowed to rest. You are allowed to recuperate. That's one thing I noticed about my career, you know, years and years and years on the trot, probably 12 years, just straight up competing. You know, that's not normal. Um, there should have been better planning, better programming, you know, a rest year here. We didn't have, to, you know, indoors and outdoors. That's quite kind of insane. But yeah. we didn't. when you know better, you can do better. And I didn't know better. Mm. I'm finding that with football at the moment as well, in terms of athlete welfare. All these people who are coming in, like especially the, the American owners and things like that, they're trying to make all these new tournaments and there's no breaks for the footballers to actually recover. At the moment, we're going from Euro to a, Euros to a season, to a World Cup, which is being played in winter, to then we're going to go straight back wow. into a Euros. And it's like, when are the, when are the players going to rest? And they try to make that Super League playing in Champions League, Europa League. And now there's been made another um, European yeah. thing for like the seventh place in the Prem. So it's like, how are these players supposed to actually recoup? Because they're playing two or three games a week now. So Is that the COVID recovery strategy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it could be. It literally could be. Please. <laughs> that, that's uh, awesome. Man, that's tough. But welcome to track and field. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, exactly. And this is the whole thing, you know, they need to realize they're dealing with humans, yeah. not machines. Yes, we do machine-like things, but we are people first. Hundred um, percent. It's all. It's all just for the money, and they're just trying to. Yeah. Yeah. It's just sad. It's sad. So you did mention, or actually, you didn't mention, but one thing that I kind of took from what you were talking about earlier is that you potentially had like a negative experience with like the media or. Or like head coaches, like UK Athletics, like tell us more about that. I think I read somewhere that there might have been some conflict or... Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, where to start? Yeah, Not so much ahead. the media. <laughs> I would say with the media, I have a great relationship with the media now. Okay. They are the ones, they're the gateway to you and the fans. Um, obviously yep. social media, you take it into your own hands. I think they're very misunderstood um, and I always used to criticize them for just not getting my voice and asking me. Um, they were just going off what, you know, the governing body would feed or what the general chatter was, whereas go straight to the athletes. I would rather tell my story and have it be a version of the truth that I, you know, re recognize rather than just guessing and repeating garbage. But um, <laughs> as far as the governing body, um, I think they're quite disconnected from the athletes. And so you do have like a performance director that I had issues with. Um, he didn't know me at all. And so this is always something I say, like, you need to know your athletes, you need to listen to them. Um, and a sport like athletics, very few of the athletes are the ones that are supported that are making the team. Yeah. So, yeah, you've got 30 athletes or whatever on the funding roster, but how many athletes make the team? Hundreds. So there's a lot more athletes that are not supported. There's a lot more needs that are not being met. Yeah, we still have a duty of care. You know, you set the standard for nationals. How many athletes go to nationals? Why isn't there a funding structure for if you make the final, your national championships? You know, mm. um, there's so many decisions they make without the athlete in mind, uh, ironically, that has a devastating impact on many, many athletes, which 
I feel like they just aren't addressing at the moment. So my personal situation was about, you know, comments being made about the type of runner I was. I didn't fit the mold for 800 meter running in the UK. Um, I definitely wasn't the size and shape and build that they were, you know, had, were used to. Um, and in, again, instead of supporting and, you know, figuring out what made me work, I felt like they were always molding and trying to change who I was, you know, and, you know, in your formative years, that's really difficult to deal with because you're still figuring it out. Um, all I knew was that <laughs> this is how I ran. Um, and when you get people telling you you're big and you're too this and you're too like heavy boned, that's what the head coach said. Um, it does get to you, you know, so I kind of just figured I'd had enough and just kind of went off in my own direction as this maverick, whether they accept me or not, um, it was up to them. Um, and all I could do was continue to work with the one body that I had. Um, but, you know, looking back, I would have loved to have been a bit more autonomous and made decisions off of my back. Unfortunately, I couldn't afford to fund myself through my sports, so I was very dependent and reliant on them. But in hindsight, and if social media was what it is now, yeah. you know, I could have been a lot more autonomous and just did things on my terms, which would have suited me more. Um, instead of putting my career in the hands of people that didn't understand me, didn't care to understand me, and only celebrated me when I was winning. Mm. Um, and, you know, there is change happening. There's a lot of um, sort of at boardroom level, there's a lot that needs to change. It's been like an old white boys club for a long time. That needs to change. Um, and they need to start listening to the athlete's stories. So that's why I started to touch the stigma, basically, because, you know, there's so many things we just don't talk about. Athletics is very much a complicit culture, sweep it under the rug. Um, there's a lot of bad things happening that people are just turning a blind eye to, which isn't okay so whether it's part of my experience or not I just think you know you've got the issue of humanity and athletes when they get to the end of the road when they feel that the only way out is to take their life yes you do need to start taking note um and it's stressful as it is what we do is stressful how are, you know how are athletes being supported at the minute our governing body doesn't even know what people are doing when they retire you know unless you are you know the one percent that actually manages to get a medal you know, and I am, and they don't even know what I'm doing. Um, it's it's sad, you know, that's, it's it's very uh, synonymous to, you know, the veterans, um, you know, you dedicate so much of your life, you're institutionalized, you actually are you're programmed to think a certain way, to live a certain way, but you've got to be grateful because, you know, it's your choice. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. Um, <laughs> but then at the end of it, just to be almost like, just chucked off the cliff. Um, yeah it has much longer lasting you know impact and leaves scars that they could not even begin to imagine so yeah that was something that I guess the advocate in me just couldn't deal with I was really ready to be like forget track and field <laughs> if I yeah. worked in sport I'd go and find a rich sport to work in <laughs> but yeah. I didn't start because it was a rich sport you know in hindsight yeah. I'd be a tennis player but um <laughs> Um, you know, I do a lot of mentoring. I do a lot of talking to kids in schools and I am just a kid that dreamed really, really big um, and kept going. So I don't want the same situation. Like it's been 20 something years. Like it's insane to me that there's no improvement. And when I speak to other athletes, because this is what I do, I love to network amongst my peers, all sports, 
and hear their stories and I'm just hearing them go oh yeah my day and uh, why are we still talking about this if this was happening in your day you know your Chris Akabusi's and you know yeah. back in the day athletes I'm like well you guys had more money than we did too <laughs> yeah. um so yeah change is definitely needed but it's changing mindset and culture so that's the toughest thing and I think people just got tired um but you know an 800 meter runner never gets tired yeah, that's true. <laughs> I might need to rest, but yeah. I'll come back. <laughs> you know, when you talk about uh, wanting to become autonomous and you talk about overcoming adversity, uh, criticism, and your experiences with injury, have you had, is that all, so when you wanted to become autonomous and things like that, is that sort of through self reflection or have you ever worked with like a sports psychologist? What's your experience with a sports psychologist? No, you guys came a bit too late, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, what class is next year? What are we doing? <laughs> yeah. um, no, I would have loved to. Again, it's a, it's quite, and, you know, I'd love to hear you guys take on this. Like, how do we make this affordable for athletes that aren't on funding? So, obviously, when I was on funding, you know, I had access to all this support. Unfortunately, for me, running was my escape, yeah? So, I had a lot of issues that were going on in my life. Um, or dealing with traumas that were unprocessed, uh, which I just funneled into this running funnel. Um, but then when I had unexplainable performances or really bad anxiety and things like that, the sports psychologist I had was like not able to go delve deep enough. And I remember her actually saying, you know, I can't deal with anything that's not on the track. And I was like, well, you can't help me. Um, because I am quite, you know, I like to say I'm quite academic, quite intellectual. Yeah. I can read the stuff she was telling me. <laughs> but again, I need to understand why I panicked, or why I froze or why I had, you know, this reaction or I've been doing this for the last three weeks leading up to this. So I felt like I was doing a lot of it myself. I did um, have quite a few years with a CBT uh, therapist, which yeah. I found really helpful, really, really helpful. Unfortunately, it got disjointed when I moved to America um and then in America I just couldn't afford I had everything else to pay for I couldn't really afford it and I really did need it then so that's kind of why I went into my life coaching um because I just wanted to understand some of my <laughs> emotional release um and journeys and then I just became fascinated with mindset um and then I, I don't know I've just oh yeah I'm in a working group trying to find this holistic model performance so I came across a lot of psychologists clinical psychologists, sports psychologists in that group. Um, and I think it's just finding the ones that really understand that athlete lifestyle, um, which will really thrive, especially in an individual sport. Um, and just working from, you know, the person in front of you. I think yeah. when you are in a governing body um, set up, it's kind of the, everyone's, it's like the brand, isn't it? So it was almost like, if you're that athlete that's deemed to medal, all the attention will go on you. If you're not, you're just ticking, they're just ticking a box with you. So getting that real individualized support is crucial, I think. And I, I just hate the word elite at the moment because I think if you've got the mindset, you can be elite, but you yeah. do need support. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely, I am definitely an advocate. Um, I think it's it's 80%, if not more, about the mind. So why yeah. wouldn't you train that we thrash our bodies you know seven days a week you need yeah. to work your mind and, and you see it you see athletes crumble under the pressure 
therefore yeah. and they've trained hard I had, a, I had training partners that trained much harder than me but could never get it together on the day in the race I needed to I needed to win I had to win that was the difference I was just ruthless yeah. whereas you know I don't know maybe if you're not really having that kind of um I don't know that little bit of edge in life or it's a bit easy um then you have the room for that chimp to get at you on race day <laughs> whereas mm. I did not have room <laughs> that chimp have you read the chimp paradox yeah, Mr. Stevie, yeah. that was one of the first workshops I did back in the day. Day. I'm like halfway um, through it, so yeah. Yeah, uh, I like. I liked it. I was like, okay, finally. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in terms of, I preferred of... the chimp to calling it a gremlin. Although I don't have gremlins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I um, I really like his work, um, but I also like to go a little deeper yeah. than that because I had like really crazy stress responses. I didn't really understand how much, you know, something completely away from my sport, but it wasn't, it's all connected. You know, for me, financial hardship was something that is ingrained um, generationally in my family. So, you know, there was always gonna be, unless that financial literacy happened, there was always gonna be these traps that I fell into um, and how it was manifesting in me. Uh, and then looking at my money mindset and, you know, my relationship with money, like now it's just like, wow, like I wish I could have done this work whilst yeah. I was an athlete. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's fascinating. I'd love to hear you guys' take. <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of that affordability, what you was on about for, for a sports psychologist, I think that's something we're kind of, we're not really aware of, like the prices and things like that until we start a stage two. It's something that's very... Uh, no one really talks about it at all. It's but... expensive when you're a poor athlete. If you're not, it's not. Like right now, I have no problem. Well, I'm not quoting, I'm not rich, but yeah. I would not have a problem because I can make, it, I can make money now. Yeah. Whereas the lifestyle I was living, I felt like I was very restricted to how I could make money, how much I could, how much work I could do. Whereas now, £90 an hour is very much worth a session. You yeah. know, knowing what it's going to do for the quality of my life. Or... I can afford an insurance premium, which will give me some money back. You know what I mean? Whereas, yep. and that's all the things like athletes aren't really told about insurance. And, you know, before when I was being insurance for athletes was like, a, it was so expensive. Whereas there's companies now that really want to, you know, help support athletes, or maybe an insurance company could be your sponsor and you'd get access to, you know, all this support that you really need that really makes the difference. I can't tell you how much I've spent on medical. You know, that's the biggest, biggest amount, just ballpark of like probably 90K of my own money, just yeah. trying to fix my body year after year, trying to get scans, trying, you know, it, that's a lot of money yeah. to lose. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, because we a need point, you guys. A point I was going to bring up was <laughs> I think the first barrier is sort of um, helping athletes understand that, like you said, the mind is just as important as the body. You said that athletes are working like probably harder than you, probably better than you. But the fact that you can keep it together on on game day, it, and when it really matters, is like the difference in between you winning and them winning. Um, so I think that so like they're not always forking out just on a physiotherapist and things like that, and sort of putting us on the same level as them in in terms of importance is is key. Because yeah. I find I find with athletes. When I was growing up, no one would really even think about talking to a psychologist or, or things like that. And it'd often be 
physiotherapist, sports therapist, things like that to sort of get the body right. But like you said, 80% is, is your mind. And that's the whole mm -hmm. reason why I got into psychology because I think the difference yeah. between being good and great is being able to perform when it really matters. Absolutely, 100%. Um, obviously it's like, there's that stigma, isn't it? Yep. You're going to see a psychologist, there's something wrong with you. Wrong with you. Athletes yeah. should be doing this before this, you know, before any, you know, because you're, for me, it's all about self-mastery uh, and self-awareness. I am learning so much about myself, like you do anyway, but, you know, I was never a student of 800 meter running and track and field. I just ran out there and ran, you know, mm. and it's great. That's like a nice story when you're in your 20s, but actually from 20 to whenever you know we should have planned for that this is why i like to work on transitions with athletes we should have planned for the end because that's going to come that's the only guarantee one day i'm not going to be doing my running anymore and you know it's been such a big trauma because i wasn't prepared for it and i wasn't supported through it um whereas it's the one thing i knew that was going to happen i didn't know i was going to get olympic bronze medal i didn't know i was going to be a world finalist but i knew one day i wasn't gonna be a runner anymore so this is why you know, I'm very much just coming through the other side. I literally just got my first proper job on Saturday, you know, and it's like just looking at thanks, looking <laughs> at all I've been through. And now I'm going to go through the press elimination, all the things that athletes need to know, like way before, you know, yeah. start thinking about it. It's fine. I think they think, oh, my God, if I think about that and being negative. No, it's good to have a plan B. <clears throat> Excuse me. And more and more we're seeing what I like to say, see, say, are athletepreneurs because you have to be so resourceful to fund yourself mm. so we've got loads of ideas loads of ideas we don't have the strategy but this is kind of stuff you will work on when you're learning about yourself learning with your psychologist or a coach whatever you know you you choose what method works for you you figure out who you are that identity yeah. is huge you figure out what your values are what you stand for what you don't you figure out what your causes are and yeah. and generally your life after sport will go in the direction of your values um so yeah sport psychology is so important for me i ran with my mind i think that's my yeah. next book i've said it here first um <coughs> i definitely <laughs> nice did <clears throat> because if you'd have said this 10 year old girl from stonebridge park is going to this posh boarding school is going to the olympics everyone would have said get out of here whatever yeah. You know, um, you know, nothing's changed in terms of my uh, family's living situation. We're still, you know, in that area. I'm trying to break out and, and break the cycle of poverty in my family. That's what was fueled me for so long. And that will always fuel me. Um, but I have hit really high platforms. I have networked with incredible people. Um, I have been in incredible networks and sport has afforded me that mm. and I just couldn't afford to you know bow down to the fear of what are you doing here or you're not good enough and I could only do that with a strong mind you know um so yeah definitely it goes with any high performance any high achievers anyone trying to be successful you do it with your mind before anything else um, and that doesn't change for sport mm. I think something that people forget is that sports psychologists can also help after sports like during that transition period it's not only during an athlete's career so yeah it's really interesting like hearing your story and on that like how are you finding this transition like light of retiring how are you experiencing it like truly 
how are you feeling tell yeah. us no I will tell you <laughs> stop, stop talking at you um no I love that you said that because sports psychologists are always there in a time of crisis as well yeah. but I, I want I would love athletes to not understand, not just expect to go and see one when there's crisis. I think mm. generally, maybe less frequently. Um, and that's how I worked with the guy I worked with, Donovan. He was brilliant. He's just like, hey, well, let's keep checking in um, and maybe just do it on the phone if it's a busy time, which you would do if you're traveling or whatever. But in those times of crisis when, unfortunately, you know, you see a physio, and you see a sports psychologist, that's probably who you see. You don't really get to see your teammates because you can't train. Coaches, sadly, they're getting better. They don't know what to do with you. Um, but also you kind of just want someone, and this is where obviously the physio is dealing with the injury, the problem. But the sports psychologist is someone that you can talk about other stuff with. You yeah, can yeah. you can realign your goals. You can reframe things. They help you make sense of the chaos you're in. Okay, so that's what I think. That's why I say transitions happen a lot or crisis management is needed. And that's a crucial role that sports psychologists will fill. And that's definitely how I've um, experienced it. Um, the transition for me was very long and drawn out, um, which I don't recommend. <laughs> but, you know, um, I, so one of the best things about me is my perseverance and keeping going and pushing through. It's also one of, you know, my flaws. <laughs> so I had to learn when enough was enough and when to stop self-sabotaging because that's what it became. I no longer had joy for running. I had joy for supporting, mentoring. You know, I was becoming a fan of my sport and I was like, oh my God, what's wrong with me? I'm like celebrating that girl and she's my, should be my rival, you know? Um, and it just changed. My priorities changed. I just wanted to look after my Bentley. Yeah, doggies. <laughs> we love doggies on this podcast. Yes. Um, I really wanted to run, but not for the right reasons. Mm. I wanted to prove people wrong. I wanted to just get back. I wasn't winning deep, as it were, reading yeah. um, Pippa Granger's book. And, you know, I was just all about, you know, writing all the wrongs that I felt like had happened. That's not good fuel at 36 when your your body is burnt out and battered. So I just got worse and worse. And then I think I just really hit rock bottom and thought, okay, forget this. <laughs> I tried everything. I cannot be faulted for, you know, not trying everything. I eventually resorted in, you know, doing remote coaching with a coach in Australia. So essentially I was training myself. And I just remember I had a key to the track and I was just like, I'm sitting here and I don't even want to be here. Some days I'd go and just leave, yeah. um, which I would never have done leading up to Beijing I would never have done leading up to any other championship so I was like what's going on that self-chat um and I think for a long time I knew I was done it was hard breaking it to the people around me because they were they were inspired like she doesn't give up but at the same time I was just like guys stop telling me this crap (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to no Olympics (laughs) (laughs) you're too good a friend I need people that can tell me that tell me real um but then my close friends just kept saying, it's your choice. It's your choice. You choose. We're supporting you, whichever you choose. So I was like, oh, man, can't someone choose for me? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I just December 31st, I took off my trainers after a week of random runs. And I was like, I don't even want to do that anymore. It's cold. My body is tired. I just, they say, you know, and you know, and I just knew. Um, so I gave myself the whole of January just to do some like, 
inner work, kind of really thinking deeply about what my next trajectory was. You don't have this clear cut. I'm going to go into this. Very rarely do you do that. Um, I, I'm someone that has had my fingers in lots of pies, not literally because I'm in Wigan, but I've tried lots of things. Um, I love my public speaking. I love the media world. I've got loads of ideas. What I didn't have was the energy to just set up a business. So that was what was exhausting because you start networking like crazy. And then all these people are like, it's simple. With your platform, just do this, just do this. Just If I, if I heard just do this one more time, I was going to punch someone. Well, that's great. How? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I loved joining my life coaching company, Wild Success. They were brilliant. I was trying to chicken out of that. She wouldn't let me. So Susie, she was great. She coached me. And they're all the way in Australia. Um, but, you know, really supported in terms of that. Mm. Um, I knew I didn't want to go straight into coaching. I know like my coaching, when I eventually am coaching, I want to work with athletes. So I want to know what that looks like. I guess the big vision is to have like a player support services network um, and be able to take athletes through that journey and connect with great services like yourselves when you're ready um, <laughs> and mentor, really mentor into the journey of these athletes that want to have a career and make it an actual career that they can sustain themselves on, on their terms. So yeah, I'm still doing kind of my research on that and connecting with like-minded people um it's very lonely because you're so out of sync with where your friends are in their life mm. you know loads of them are married with children um loads of my family and friends are down south i moved up north for my running so i had to deal with a lot of like resentment that i have for athletics like you feel really useless and empty um you know dare I say you feel like a failure and people are like what but it's like you don't feel like you know you've got anything to show um but you know one of the nice things for me is that I do have a really lovely fan base I've got a great club that supported my whole career so my retirement I wrote a letter and published it in Athletics Weekly and that had such a good um, reception and response and I think that really helped me and then like that weekend, I was commentating at the European Indoor Championships. And I knew just from how I was there that actually this was the right decision. Yep. And yeah, like I feel like when it's the right decision, it's it's not such a fight and mm. things just will fall where they may. Um, and then I just went into this whirlwind of like, oh my gosh, I've got so many options. Don't know what to choose. And I'm indecisive anyway, Libra. Um, and then recently, you know, with the trials in America and here, all these different people like, I'm going to Tokyo, I'm going to Tokyo. I'm like, oh my God, I want to go to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, what's wrong with me? I've just decided, I've retired, I'm happy, I'm good, I'm making money, I'm not living like a broke athlete. And then, oh, it's so sad. So, wow. so sad. So that was like the grief stage. Then I was angry, then I was sad. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's just this whirlwind of emotions. <laughs> Mm. um and you know I do have a lot more support in place than I did when I was actually competing the last few or trying to compete the last few years so that's definitely helped um and just trying to work on my mindset and look forward to life beyond the track and not like the death it feels but an extension um and the things I'm getting into now are fun you know something that was hard a couple of things that happened was well just generally the job search is hard. Finding something that will sustain me is respectful of my, my career, my experiences, but also 
I don't have necessarily industry experience or executive experience. Um, so sort of being sensitive to that, but also giving me that time to develop into it. So I thought like that's what I found eventually, but it was so hard every time you apply and you go through these processes and you get your hopes up I'm through to the second round, through to the third round. And they go, oh, thank you so much, but you don't have enough experience. Like, that's always me? the reason that's always Can, reason. are you kidding me you could have told me that like Literally. two weeks ago you've wasted my time mm. <laughs> i was getting so annoyed and then you're just like oh i am a failure all i can do is run around in circles and i can't even do that anymore <laughs> um so it's really rough but like things like my cv in the beginning i had a wicked mentor and she just like completely revamped it and like where's all my medals like what's going on <laughs> yeah, yeah. um and then to get this job I worked with a guy and just the language it was all me but it was just the way he put it and I was like CV is pretty dope why don't I get this job um so yeah so it was exciting it's definitely I mean I, I retired in February so I'm, I know I'm doing pretty well but it is a bit of a minefield of everything you're going to go through my body is completely I don't know who she is it's not mine she's totally changed um yeah. Which is hard. It's really hard to process. I'm used to just fitting into whatever hell I want to wear. Um, and then like half my wardrobe is too small. Makes no sense to me. I don't know <laughs> what's happened. Who is she? But it's not like when I look in the mirror, I'm not like, oh my gosh, I just, I'm different, very different. Um, so, but I, I do, I, I did have a negative reaction to running and I just like started to feel weird and I didn't want to do it. So I've started to get moving again and just figuring out where it can fit into my day rather than before running dictated everything so everything fit around running yeah. um, so just maintaining a healthy lifestyle so I kind of understand what my friends were moaning about I used to be like so lazy just go to the gym <laughs> now that's me yeah, that's <laughs> so yeah um yeah it's it's it is a process yeah. Yeah, it is I'm, definitely a process. I mean, we're always here if you want to chat. <laughs> we're always here yeah. for you. But you can, um, you can always yeah. join in the thirty-one day uh, Master in the Mind challenge on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah we've created a challenge to basically. Right, August first. Uh, no, we, we're July. in it now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm late. In July. Yeah. yeah. And it's never too late to join. <laughs> yeah. I'm joining. You know me. I love a challenge. <laughs> yeah. It won't yeah, be much we, of a challenge to you. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah you pass it easy. But we really appreciate you being so honest about what it's like, you know. Um, I don't think a lot of people would be that open and be so honest. So, yeah, thank you so much for kind of shedding light on this. And I think it's really important to shed light on this because someone might be experiencing what you're experiencing. So it's literally like, Thank you so much for, for kind of sharing. Oh, that. it's my pleasure. You know, storytelling is really powerful. Yeah. Even if it's not just for me, I've had an incredible therapy session, guys. I appreciate you. But like you said, someone somewhere is going to resonate with something. Um, and I think, you know, this is why I'm so proud of Detach the Stigma because it's kind of, it's, it's you know, having really launched properly, but it's important we have these courageous conversations and it's important that one, we create that you're not alone. Um, but also, you know, we, we can signpost people to where they can get support and help. Um, and together, you know, you can change um, a culture which really needs ramping up. <laughs> We're all for it. We're all with you. Yay, thank you. <laughs> You're stuck with me now. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, but before we wrap up, we have uh, uh, questions from our audience. Uh, so what we asked for on IG and things like that. <laughs> Um, I thought so, you were going to say you have a prize. Oh, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. 
Um, <laughs> so me and John will go one for one asking these and then, uh, and then yeah, we can wrap up. But uh, the first one is, um, so obviously we've talked about your career, but what are your hobbies outside of sport? um eating <laughs> yeah read through love that. that yeah <laughs> love that um singing i do yeah. sing um yeah covid kind of messed that up because i was like this ad hoc wedding singer which i was loving to go to people's weddings it's great um oh. but yeah no i have a background in jazz and gospel so i do a lot of singing obviously my puppy yeah Facts. He is a little, he's been so good today, hasn't he? Little fashioned um Bentley. So he's been in really important to my, you know, my mental health journey and just having that kind of other outlet. And he just makes me laugh. I'm someone that I just need to laugh and smile. And he's hilarious. Sausage dogs are just funny just looking at them. Um I do a lot of work in um safeguarding and support now and advocacy. Um, for a lot of like issues around with women and girls and um, yeah. got a mentoring program with my old rival Becky Lynn so <laughs> just looking at that kind of holistic side of sport and the enjoyment and I guess just everything we wanted to hear um, but there are some really serious issues going on I really that's I guess my politics head from uni yeah. I just um, I really want to see athletes thrive and not just you know get spat out the system and have to deal with things that that's not what we come into abusive coaches and things like that's not what we come into sport for so yeah that kind of stuff really kind of it's weird to say it's a hobby but it's definitely what I spend a lot of my time researching and and campaigning and lobbying for I mean if you love what what, your hobby then it's going to become a job so it's great that you're doing that when you said um you love singing I I didn't know it was like like your actual proper singer I was going to ask you what what's your career just in the shower What's your karaoke <laughs> song? <laughs> yeah. Valerie. Oh, okay. Valerie. Classic, oh okay. a classic. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, so the second question was, what is some advice you would give a young track and field athlete who wants to make it at the top level? To join my mentoring program, Rosalind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm <Nicholas> serious. <laughs> <laughs> but no, honestly, it depends where you're at. Absolutely, I love that you you're shooting for excellence. You're shooting for the top. That shows me focus and ambition. Uh, but you've got to be willing to work for it. So as long as you want to unlock that champion mindset within you, everyone has one. It's just being willing to do what it takes to get there. So are you signed up with a club? Are you going to your school clubs? Um, just get information and find someone that is a role model, a real role model that is doing that. Follow, see what they do, um, and just really become a student of what, if you want to get to the top, you need to know your sport. Um, But initially, you know, are you practicing your sport? Um, Get connected with your local club. um, and, and, And also your local council will have a lot of information. There's a big push for, you know, physical activity and, and, you know, First and foremost, it's important to be healthy. So if you're stuck or if your school doesn't have much info, which they should, I feel like I've been to every school in the nation this <laughs> this summer, um, get in touch with the local club or your local authority and just get started. Yeah. Good advice. luck. <laughs> um, and then the last one was, how do you mentally prepare before competition? I sing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. What, what, what sort of like would you, would you sing to yourself? Why the hell am I here? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so the mental prep starts 
you know, it's it's something you need to exercise a little bit each day. Every session for me, I practice uh, the psyche. Um, if I'm going into a championship, my coach would actually, you know, set up a mini quorum uh, for a time trial. So we would have like 15 minutes where we've done our warm up. We're in this quorum bit. We can't really leave. Um, obviously, at the competition, if you need to go to the toilet, they escort you. They escort yeah. you. But yeah, we were just getting the zone then, practicing that kind of getting in the zone. On many of my long runs, I practice my psychological stuff. Um, and then in the lead up to a race, I found my anxiety two days before was really, really heightened. So I would always have that day off. I would do something enjoyable, something, you know, be around people I wanted to be around, um, eat whatever the hell I wanted to eat. <laughs> There's not really that much that's going to really set you off two days later, like chill yeah. out. Um, and okay. then on the day was the other day where would be the other time where I really struggled and I had to get control of you know that that negative self chat so I would plan my day to a T and I'm not really that organized guys well I am I've put that on my CV I'm organized but... <laughs> we'll cut it out we'll cut it um, out yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but my day on race day was every hour was written down because when you do get into that funk or that bog you can just pull out this card which it literally was either in my pocket or in my bra and I would literally be like okay where am I what time is it where am I supposed to be I rarely needed it because I'm someone like unfortunately I can't really empty my mind and I always need to know where I need to be um but it was helpful especially when you were just really nervous um but then yeah once it was time to get ready for the track so I would always go down about three hours before um four hours before that's when I start getting into my persona, the, the runner, the yeah. unwavering wavering confidence, that just that beast mode, shall yeah. we say. And it's it literally it starts from the shower to the makeup, kit on, um, number on, like game face on, and then going down and just being mindful that my phone would be switched off. Um, if my coach was there, he'd probably be one of the only people I talked to. Um, and obviously people are going to say things to you, but it's just being able to focus mm. in spite of everything going around you. So that really would start before I left the hotel and headphones on and listen to music that gave me confidence, music that not necessarily made me really aggy because I didn't really want to be like tense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not good yeah. for me. I needed to still have a state of relaxation. So for me, a lot of like gospel music um, and then just pop that I enjoyed, you know, who doesn't love a bit of Rihanna and Beyonce, um, Drake, great favourite. Um, and then when I got to the track, I'd probably have a wave of, oh, I'm here, this is real. So then I would go and find somewhere, find out where the toilets were, that was an essential, find yeah. somewhere to sit, get my mat out, stretch a little bit, chill out. And then obviously my card would tell me when to have my drink, when to go for my warm up. you know, so that was really okay. important just to have that there. Um, check your spike 50 million times <laughs> um, and then one of the things you had to do was check what time your call up was so again once you've checked in try and get that down and then just yeah just try and chill out I would often take a walk around the stadium I like the environment the crowd was very important to me um, just so it's, you know it's real and it's not such a shock when you come out of a warm-up area and then it's suddenly hearing the roar which it always will invoke something, but I wanted to invoke something positive in me. So I'd always just get that familiarity. You'd also see athletes performing and running. Um, so yeah. And then 
yeah, we would be go to warm up. I always felt better once I'd done my jog because yeah. it was like, oh, my legs do work. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I guess the mind games start a bit because you're trying to psych your competitors out. Um, so, okay. yeah, I was definitely that annoying person. I was always singing and I was always happy. Um, yeah. Damn. <laughs> but that's what I needed to be to keep yeah. relaxed. Um, yeah. And I had to remind myself of the gratitude I had to be here um and i'm and all the hard work i've done so i didn't come here to lose <laughs> yeah whatever was gonna happen i wasn't losing um and then the call up and then it's literally going out onto the track and then the, the gun would go and i just the next thing you know you finish the race and you were either happy or you were sad <laughs> in terms of psyching the those like your opponents out i i swear i see that with like usain bolt the way that he yeah. is like with the, with the crowd well, yeah. and things like that it must be for other people like who are competing against him like how are you so calm and embracing this this, this stage yeah he's like the king out. of that yeah he 100%. absolutely is and i never was as relaxed as you know the exterior gave away never but yeah. they were never going to know that yeah, <laughs> no yeah. one was going to know that um and so sometimes i would probably have like a big like my ner most nervous races i noticed i'd have a really big cry before I left my hotel room get it all out and I'll be like what the hell are you scared of like this is what you do and then I'll go and get ready um yeah. so that was all done um but a lot of it was just anticipation of like how's this gonna go just so many emotions um you know I would wouldn't use my phone that much but if I did I could just call Donovan or whoever I was working with at the time you know and you just remind yourself all the things you've told yourself all your affirmations all year we've been working for this and I always I only ever really felt like this at nationals this was the worst championship for me, nationals, because so much was hinging on it. Other races, I was like, nah, I'll be back next week. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but nationals yeah. is like, that's getting on the plane. Um, and then obviously at the championship, probably, depending on what state my body was in. But uh, yeah, Usain Bolt used to make people think that they could do that and then they'd completely mess up their race. <laughs> uh, yeah. So stick a... to your lane, do what works for you. <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's great advice. But, um, thanks so much for uh, coming on. We've really, really appreciate it. I've loved hearing to your story. I'm sure it's going to help lots of people. Um, I hope so. Normally, before we finish the um, podcast, we give the guests like a, a little time to plug themselves, plug anything that they've got going on. Obviously, all your socials and that will be in the uh, description below. Uh, but anything you want to shout out? Absolutely. So I've got to shout out Graceful Girls, which is our online wellbeing and performance program. Um, we would probably love to have you guys talk to our girls at some point. Um, yeah. Just got it started, but we're literally just trying to, you know, teach the girls about themselves. They all, you know, have aspirations to go far in athletics, but we want them to enjoy it as well. So our acronym of Grow Align and um, Grow, I can't remember, Align <laughs> <laughs> Circular. Um, which is like the fulfillment of, you know, sport and enjoy. Um, yeah. You know, we really have seminars. We talk about this. So a lot of it is mindset as well. But we also have a fun online conditioning um, session on Monday nights, which I'm going to be at after this. Um, but also, you know, my baby, Detach the Stigma. Um, just look out for it, really. If you see it anywhere, just give it a like, give it a share, share your story. If yeah. you want to come on and be interviewed by me, that'll be great. Um, but we need to have these conversations and create that safe space in the community um, to actually, you know, go on to affect change. But um, yeah, Marilyn Okoro, O-L-Y, across the socials. But thank you so much for having me on. No worries. It's been a pleasure. 
Um, but if you could please share this with your friends or someone you would feel benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below uh, any questions you had um, or any guests you want us to get on in the future. But other than that, thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you in the next one. Bye, guys. Thank you.